Well, please do sit down. And as you sit, you might like to uh, fish out this uh, handout that I've uh, had uh, inserted into all the uh, service orders uh, so you can see where we're going in the next few moments. Well, we've heard through the service it's Valentine's Day and love is in the air everywhere you look around, as John Paul Young sang back in the 70s. And if you've been inspired by love songs in the charts down through the years, then you'll be feeling today that love is all you need, that it changes everything, and on a good day you can even feel it in your fingers and your toes. Now look, I know that Valentine's Day can be uh, thoroughly sentimental and with very little substance, but the truth is we can't live without love. A person who knows no love or who gives no love will shrivel and become embittered. We were made to love. We were made in the image of the God who is love. Love really is at the heart of the universe. It is at the very heart of Christianity because it is at the very heart and soul of God himself. God is love. And so this morning, and in our lead up to Easter, we'll be exploring a love that is purer, stronger, greater, safer, deeper, and more extravagant than any other love in the whole universe. It is, of course, the love of God that we see demonstrated supremely at the cross of Christ. So let me pray that we would understand that love as we've never understood it before. Let me pray for us now. Using the words of the Apostle Paul, I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love, that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Amen. Now over these next weeks, as we look at the cross, we'll be looking at five great truths. Uh, Substitution, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption and justification. Now, hearing that list may bring to mind a Colin Buchanan children's song. Those of you who are fans of Colin Buchanan, this is how one of his songs go. Big words that end in shun show us what the Lord has done. Through Jesus, his own son, big words, big words that end in shun. Gareth quotes Plato, I quote Colin Buchanan. Over the next few weeks, we'll be uh, looking at those five, at five big words then that end in shun. But let me tell you, this is not going to be a dry theology course. Understanding these big words that end in shun should leave us overwhelmed by the love of God. They should have an impact on us at the most profound and deepest level. You see, when people meet with me and they tell me that their Christian life isn't going very well, they'll they'll say things like this, uh, God feels far away, he feels a million miles away from me. Or or I feel as if God is punishing me. Or I feel that uh, God can't accept me, I feel guilty. And when you feel like that, if you're a Christian, then it spills over to every aspect of life, every part of the whole of your life. And here's the thing, the answer to those feelings is to understand these big words that end in shun. When a Christian says to me, God feels far away, it is the reconciliation of the cross that they need to understand. When another says, I feel as if God is punishing me, I need to explain to them the great truth of propitiation. Now, if at the moment you don't understand that word, don't worry, we're going to look at it next week. But you need to understand what it's about when you feel as if God is punishing you. When you feel trapped, you need to bask in the glorious redemption 
that Christ won for you on the cross. And when brothers and sisters in Christ are racked with guilt because of their sin, they need to understand in the depths of their being the wonderful doctrine of justification. Big theological words then that end in shun matter because understanding them affects us at the deepest level. Understanding these words is truly life-transforming because they tell me that I am loved by Almighty God with a love that is like no other. Let's turn then to our first big word that ends in shun. It is the word substitution. And I've uh, put a a sort of dictionary definition on the uh, handout there. Now we start uh, with substitution. We start here because substitution is the mechanism by which the other four big words that we'll be looking at come about. Let me explain that. Sometimes when uh, you hear people uh, understanding and explaining the cross, they believe that substitution is one of a number of things that goes on at the cross. Substitution, reconciliation, redemption, justification. Now that's not the way to see it at all. Uh, Substitution is right at the heart. See it more as a wheel. Substitution is at the hub. And in order for us to be reconciled, reconciliation comes through substitution. Justification comes through substitution. Redemption comes through substitution. Substitution is right at the heart of all these other things that we're going to see over the next weeks. That's why we're beginning here. What is substitution? It's remarkably straightforward. Uh, It is putting a person or thing in the place of another. A substitution happens everywhere in life, all the time, every day. It happens when I buy things from the shop. I hand over money to the shopkeeper, he gives me some goods in return. One thing is substituted for another. That's all it means. Substitution happened to me this week when someone took a job away from me, a job that I couldn't do, a task that I simply wasn't able to do myself. I'd been worrying about it for some time and uh, he came to see me and as he walked out of my study door it felt such a relief that he was taking with him a problem that I couldn't solve. He stepped in for me. He was my substitute to deal with something I couldn't deal with. Substitution. Putting a person or thing in the place of another. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is our substitute, dealing with the problem of sin by dying on the cross for us. It is a problem that we cannot deal with ourselves, uh, so he dealt with it for us. He became our substitute. And when we grasp that, it is life-transforming. Let me tell you about Andrea. Now, before I do, I need to say that over these next weeks, I'll tell you about a number of pastoral situations. But let me assure you, I've changed the names and disguised the details of their situations so that you cannot know who I'm talking about, even though none of these situations are from my last four years here at Fullwood anyway. So let me tell you about Andrea. She began to get interested in Christian things in her early 20s when she was already a successful businesswoman. Uh, Things came to her very early in life. She was successful and beautiful. But although she had success, she had a nagging feeling that deep down there was something more to life. At the same time, she was becoming increasingly aware of her sin, although she'd have never called it that at the time. But she knew that she didn't match up to God's standards, uh, to her own standards, let alone God's. And she was aware that one day she was going to die and she thought she was going to come face to face with Almighty God. And so she wondered what happened when we die. Now, with all those thoughts going through her mind, one evening she went to an evangelistic event that her brother had invited her to. She heard the gospel that night and she received it gladly. And for the next months, everything went well for her. And then she got swept off her feet by a work colleague who wasn't a Christian. 
One thing led to another and they began to sleep together. She became pregnant. She told her boyfriend, they talked about it and they agreed that she should have an abortion. Uh, That relationship ended shortly after that. Uh, She actually ended it because as a Christian, even though she was clearly a backslidden Christian, uh, she still knew she shouldn't be sleeping with someone who wasn't her husband and she knew she shouldn't marry someone who wasn't a Christian and she wanted to get back on track with Jesus. And as the years and months rolled by, she did get her life back on track with Jesus. She really went for it with God. In the next five years, she became a vibrant Christian woman. She had assurance that when she died, she would go to heaven because of Jesus' death on the cross. She read and loved the Bible. She was disciplined in her daily prayer life. She was one of the keen people in the congregation, keen to tell others about Jesus, keen to read good books, keen to be living a consistent Christian life, keen to be involved in the local church, keen to be encouraging other Christians. But you see, there was always that one big thing hanging over her, the abortion. In her own words, I killed a little defenceless baby in order to keep my own life and reputation intact. It was a terrible decision driven by selfishness. Now, what would you say to Andrea? If she came to see you, what would you say to her? You might say, go and see the vicar. Well, okay, what what should I say to her as she came to tell me all this, with years of anxiety having weighed her down and now flooding out through the tears streaming down her face? Andrea needed to understand and to believe and to grasp hold of the truth of substitution. She needed to know that Jesus was her substitute, that his death on the cross had dealt with all her sin. Not just so she could go to get into heaven to be with Jesus, but in her relationship with God now. See, substitution is right at the heart of the history of mankind and right at the heart of the Christian gospel. A look at these words of John Stott that I've had printed on the handout. Um, uh, these words alone are worth hanging on to. If you forget nothing, uh, everything else, if you remember nothing else of these next few moments, uh, do hold on to this quote, um, put it on your fridge and meditate on it often. It is brilliant. The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. And you see there, it's a brilliant, brilliant description of what's going on in our world. Substitution explains why the world is in the mess it's in and it tells us how we can get out of the mess we find ourselves in. Let me take this brilliant paragraph of John Stott and break it into two parts. Uh, The first heading on on the handout, man has substituted himself for God. Look again at these words of John Stott. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. Now you see, we see all that uh, in the early chapters of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God told Adam, do you remember this? He told him what he could and could not do in the Garden of Eden. He told him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And God told Adam that if he disobeyed him, he would die. But Satan said, chapter 3, verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. You won't die, you'll be like God. That's the heart of sin, wanting to be like God. Knowing good and evil, in other words, being the person who decides what's right and wrong. As someone cleverly put it, sin is not so much law-breaking, but law-making. See, sin is saying, I'll make up the rules. I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll live my life my way. I'll be God. That's what Andrea did. In aborting her unborn child, she played God. For it is God who gives life and it is God who takes it away. So Andrea played God that day. She sat in the judgment seat. She made the decision about the life of another. See, as John Stott put it, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And we all do it, and we all do it every day. Now let me uh, illustrate it in in a small way, but not insignificant, to demonstrate how we do it every day. We do it when we tell lies, and you're sitting there saying, I'm not a liar. Well, when we bend the truth when we massage the facts, exaggerate and uh, the retelling of a conversation so that we end up looking good. When we tell lies to protect ourselves, to get out of trouble, to excuse ourselves for being late for work or whatever it is, we all do it. Now here's the point. Whenever I do that, I am substituting myself for God. When I lie, I am saying to the God who says, you shall not lie. I am saying at that point, I don't care what you say, God. I want to lie. I think it's for my good that I lie. I will not live by your rules. I will make up the rules for my life. Now do you see, it doesn't matter how big or small the lie is. And it doesn't matter whether it does damage to others or not. At that point, when I lie, I am asserting myself against God and putting myself where only God deserves to be. And for that reason, it is a terrible thing. I am setting myself up as the moral judge of the universe and that is just not right. Let me uh, illustrate it this way as well and say this, and this is something that I don't think most Christians get hold of. We can even do it when we appear to be playing by the rules. Um, The speed limit along Canterbury Avenue is 30 miles an hour. We may well always keep the speed limit every time we drive up this road and yet still be asserting our own standards. You see, we may keep the speed limit because we think it's a good law to keep. So in keeping the law, I'm still making up the rules. I just happen to think this fits in with my moral framework. And we know that's how some of us think because 30 minutes later when we're on the M1, we're driving at 80 miles an hour rather than 70. Because I don't think that's a law I need to keep because I think I can drive safely at at that speed on the motorway. Now, do you see, even when I appear to be moral and law-abiding, I can be substituting myself for God. I'm deciding which laws are good laws. I'll keep to the speed limit up in Canterbury Avenue because that law fits in with my moral framework. And that is why largely, a largely moral life need not be a godly life. It can still be a life in rebellion against God. I just happen to be living the same morals that God thinks are good because I think they're good, not because I'm following him, do you see? Now look, the big point is this. All the time we are substituting ourselves for God. We are deciding what is right and wrong. We do it every day and sometimes we do it in very obvious and extreme ways as Andrea did. 
But just because we all do it all the time, don't be fooled. This substituting ourselves for God is a terrible thing. It is outrageous that we creatures, we who were given life by God, who get every breath we take from God, who are nothing without God, that we think we can push God off his throne and assume his position. It is a terrible thing. It is the greatest crime in the universe and it cannot be ignored. And Andrea knew that. She felt guilty. She felt that God must be angry with her. She felt that God couldn't possibly accept her as a child of his, not after what she'd done. And here's the dilemma that Andrea and all of us find ourselves in. Throughout the Bible, the penalty for sin is death. And Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Genesis chapter 2, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Because we sin, we should die. God is rightly angry at sin, and it's right that he should punish sin. And almost everyone I meet believes that, whether they've thought about it or not. And I know they think that because people say to me, I can't believe in a God who doesn't care about, and then they cite the most recent atrocity that has hit the news headlines. We see God does care about evil and wickedness and sin. It makes him angry because he's holy, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. And God must punish sin because he is just, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. All those references are on the handout. Now that is a problem for us now and an even greater problem for us in the future when we come face to face with God. Now there's the first problem. This is at the heart of all the problems in the world. Man has substituted himself for God and that is our greatest problem. But that's not the end of the story. And so over over the sheet on the handout... God substituted himself for man. Those words of John Stott again. Substitution is at the heart of salvation. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. They're brilliant words, aren't they? And John Stott asks, asks this question. How can the holiness of God come to terms with the unholy lovelessness of man. See, he is love. He longs to forgive, but he is holy and just, and he cannot sweep sin under the carpet. So John Stott again. How then could God express simultaneously simultaneously his holiness in judgment and his love in pardon? Only by providing a divine substitute for the sinner so that the substitute would receive the judgment and the sin of the pardon. See, Jesus, the sinless one, dies in our place. He is our substitute. And this principle of substitution is everywhere in the Bible. Once you see it, you can't miss it. It's all over the Bible, and it's all over the Bible in order to point to Jesus' substitutionary death. Do you remember the story when, Isaac took, when Abraham took Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him? God provided a ram as a substitute. The ram died in Isaac's place. When the Israelites were at the mercy of the Philistine warrior Goliath, God provided David, the Lord's anointed, the Christ, if I can put it that way, to deliver Israel. David was Israel's substitute, fighting and winning the battle that they could not win. And then take the central Old Testament event, the Passover. Exodus chapters 11 to 13. We'll be remembering the Passover at Easter, of course. Remember the Passover? 
where a pure unblemished lamb was killed, its blood put on the doorpost of the household, and the angel of death, seeing the blood of the lamb, passed over the house rather than brought death and judgment upon the household. And so the lamb died so that the firstborn of each household wouldn't have to. And that's why hundreds of years later, John said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's why Peter wrote, You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Substitution is everywhere. Substitution is at the heart of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Do you ever read the Old Testament? Do you ever read the Levitical, Levitical law and wonder what on earth is going on with all of that? At the temple, Old Testament believers were to bring bulls and rams and goats and lambs and pigeons and doves to be sacrificed. What was all that about? It would have been a very bloody affair. The, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system would have had blood everywhere, all over the altar. It would have been horrible. What was all that about? Those birds and, and animals were to act as substitutes for the sin of the people. And every time an animal was sacrificed, it said to the believer, sin matters. God is holy, he cannot tolerate sin. God is just, he cannot just overlook sin. Somebody must die, you see, for sin. But it also said this, God is love. And he has made provision for your sin by providing a sacrifice to die in your place. And of course, Jesus was the fulfilment of the Old Testament sacrificial law. The Old Testament sacrificial law was always pointing to one who would finally be the supreme sacrifice that meant there would need be no more sacrifices ever again. And so he sacrificed himself, not animals, once for all, not repeatedly. Incidentally, and I didn't say this in the first service, that's why that is not an altar. Do not call it an altar. The cross is the altar. Jesus has died once for all. We don't make any more sacrifices again. Now Peter understood this when he wrote this. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Do you hear the, uh, the sacrificial language? Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. There is only one way that you and I can be brought to God through a, through a substitution. And then there's Isaiah 53. Well, we haven't looked at any, we've looked at lots of Bible passages, but we haven't turned to any of them. Turn with me to page 740 and see it in Isaiah 53, this most famous of passages in the Bible. Page 740. Many of you will know it because it's in the Bible. Others of you perhaps know it from the Messiah. These great words in Isaiah chapter 53. When I say the Messiah, I mean Handel's Messiah. You know what I'm saying. As we look at Isaiah 53, uh, this is a fact that I only discovered this week. Eight out of the twelve verses in this chapter are quite specifically picked up in the New Testament to be referring to Jesus. Other, other parts of them are, are sort of inferred, but quite specifically, eight of these twelve verses are quoted in the, Old Test, in the New Testament as referring to Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And it is a chapter teeming with substitution. Look at verse 4. He took up our infirmities. 
He carried our sorrows. Do you see substitution? Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. Verse 6. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8. The transgressions of my people, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And verse 12 at the end. He bore the sin of many. All of that is pointing to Jesus. Jesus has taken my place. And this is the big point. And that means then I can never be judged for my sin again. Yes, God is angry at my sin and it's right that he is, but he poured out his anger on Jesus. As Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God has poured out his anger upon Jesus, so God cannot be angry at my sin For Jesus has taken God's anger. And my sin separates me from Jesus, but Jesus suffered darkness and alienation from God for my sin while he was on the cross. So I will never be kicked out of God's presence because of my sin, because Jesus has taken the hit. And that's what Andrea needed to believe and apply to herself. See, she knew about the cross. She knew that it was because of Jesus' death on the cross that she would go to heaven. But over this one sin, admittedly a huge blot on her copybook, over this one sin, Andrea needed to believe that the substitutionary death of Jesus had brought her to God. Which is why as he died on the cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished. It's just one word in the Greek, some of you will know this. It's the word tetelestai, one word, paid, finished. Not a cry of defeat, a cry of victory. I've paid the price for sin by my death. And here's the thing that finally got through to Andrew, I think. I explained to her that just as the justice of God demanded that he couldn't simply let her off, but that someone had to pay for her sin, equally the justice of God meant that once Jesus had paid, God could not demand that penalty be paid a second time. It would be unjust of God to demand payment again, wouldn't it? Now, Augustus Toplady understood that. He is the uh, the author of the great hymn, Rock of Ages. And again, he's quoted on here. Do you see what he says? Payment God cannot twice demand, first for my bleeding surety's hand, and then again for mine. It's not that God won't, it's that God can't, because he's just, and if somebody's paid the price, he can't ask somebody else to pay the price. Top lady made the same point in this hymn, From Whence His Fear and Unbelief. Uh, you see, look at what's going on in, this, in, this, uh, in these words in this hymn. Now, this is talking about somebody who's, who's fearful, who, who's worried about their sin. From whence this fear and unbelief, since God my Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? Can he, the righteous judge of men, condemn me for that debt of sin which Lord was charged on thee? The answer is no, he can't. God cannot demand payment for the same sin twice. That would be unjust and God cannot be unjust. Jesus paid, I don't need to pay too. You see, I keep meeting Christians who, like Andrea, need to hear that. They know the truth of the cross. They know the cross saves them for eternity. But they are weighed down by sin now. Let me ask you, are you feeling weighed down by your sin? 
If you are, let me ask you, have you turned to Jesus in repentance and faith? Have you repented of your sin, turned away from it, and have you turned to Jesus to be your sin-bearing saviour, your substitute? If you have, then your sin has been dealt with and God remembers it no more. It's not just that he doesn't remember it anymore, he cannot bring it to bear upon you because Jesus has dealt with it. Isn't that wonderful? Maybe you're here and you're not yet a, a committed Christian. Uh, it's great that you've come and you're still weighing these things up and maybe today you've just begun to realise just how you have put yourself in the place of God how you've substituted yourself for God and you're beginning to realise how terrible that is and that is beginning to weigh you down well now listen if you repent and believe if you turn away from that sin of putting yourself in the place of God and if you turn back to Jesus as your substitute bearing your sin God remembers it no more What a God. But to grasp as I close just how loving this God is, don't miss who it is who pays for our sin. See again, to go back to the top of page two, God substituted himself for man. God substituted himself for man. Substitution, if it is understood properly, tells me that Jesus must be fully man and fully God. You see, for God and man to be reconciled, we need the God-man to bring us back together. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the verse. Jesus must be fully man to represent mankind, you see, to live the life we cannot live, to be the perfect sacrifice. For mankind must pay for his sin. And yet here's the point. If Jesus were only man then God would be unjust to take an innocent third party and sacrifice him. Imagine Jesus living this perfect life that no one else has ever lived, but he's just a man, and then God says, oh, I'll take you and you can bear the sin of the world. That would be totally unjust, wouldn't it? An innocent third party. And that, incidentally, is exactly the problem with the Jehovah Witnesses, because they believe that Jesus um, uh, died on on the cross for sin, but they don't believe he's God. Then they believe in a very unjust and wicked God who takes an innocent third party to die on behalf of everyone else. No, the astonishing wonder of Jesus' substitution is that Jesus is God. And so on the cross we see that it is God himself who took the initiative to deal with mankind's sin and to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve. That's where you see how much God loves you. On this Valentine's Day, look at the cross to see the extent of God's love that while we were still powerless, as it says in Romans chapter 5, while we were still powerless, while we could do nothing to help ourselves, God, the one who had been wronged again and again and again, acts in self-sacrificial love to bring us, his enemies, back to himself. Stand amazed. There is no other love like this. Well, let's pray together. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? We thank you, our Lord and God, that you love us that much, that you dealt with the great problem by substituting yourself, taking the the, the pain and suffering that we deserve uh, to demonstrate your love and to deal with your justice.
And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.